Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hey! On this week's agenda, we're talking about books. Books, books, books. We chatted with some of our favorite authors, people who have new stuff out right now, Nicole Chung, Imani Perry, and Glory Edom. Hey, boo, hey. Hey, hey. I'm so excited that we're talking about books and not talking about the news. I won't lie to you. <laughs> I know. Uh, readers are leaders. You it know is how true. I feel about this. It's all related. It's all related. So first up, I called a writer I really love, Nicole Chung, who I got to know when she was editing The Toast. Got to know her words anyway. I spoke to her for the first time for this very podcast. And now these days, she's the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine, which is another amazing magazine. I'm sure it's no coincidence that Nicole is also involved with that. Anyway, she has written a new memoir about transracial adoption and about family secrets and about identity called All You Can Ever Know. Have a listen to our convo about adoption and family and her memoir. Gosh, I really, I loved your book so, so much. And thank you so much for saying that. I really, I really, really did. And I'm, I'm so happy you could um, make time to be on the podcast. I, I want to start by asking you to talk about the title and the origin of that phrase in your life. Sure. Um, first of all, titles are really difficult. So when I was <laughs> writing the proposal, I think the title was probably the last thing I put in before we sent it out. Yeah, one day I kind of just lit upon this phrase. And the origin of it is, you know, growing up, I was told so many times, like, you know, this is this is all we know about your birth parents. Maybe this is all we can ever know. And uh, because it was a closed adoption. So really, we had these like bare bones facts. And it seemed highly unlikely we'd ever know more than that. So I heard that so often from my adoptive parents growing up. And that is, is, is really where that title came from. And I guess for something to rise to the level of title of your memoir, it obviously has to have some deeper meaning for you, too. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I really, first of all, I, I really liked the idea of um, sort of the second person you. I felt it sort of brought readers in a little bit more. There was a lot of like meaning and comfort, honestly, behind the original story I was told about my birth parents. So even though it wasn't a lot, and even though you know, for a long time, I thought it really was all I'd ever know about them. That story just meant so much to me. You know, that story of like my struggling immigrant birth parents who made this incredibly meaningful sacrifice because they wanted me to have a better life. You know, even though I know now that it was so much more complicated than that, of course, because how could it not be? I just took so much comfort in that familiar story for so many years. And in a sense, because a lot of this book is about my journey to search for um, and reconnect with my birth family while at the same time I was I was in the process of becoming a parent myself. I was pregnant with my first child when I searched. So, um, you know, the, the title is also a nod to the fact that this is really, this is truly like my pursuit of more knowledge. So it turns out there was more to know than I thought there was. 
Right. And like, isn't there always, right? You know, <laughs> I, um, yeah. I, I really love one of the things I love so much about this book. I mean, I don't have any personal experience with transracial adoption, but I, like everybody, have personal experience with family narratives and ingrained stories that like you hear from, hear from your parents and learn to pair it back to your parents. And, you know, I mean, yeah. one of the things that I, again, not to harp on the, on the title, but one of the things that I really love about that and, and what you do in the book is explaining how that, how narrative works within families and not just your mm-hmm. adoptive family, the family you were raised in, but your birth family. And is that something that you thought about a lot before you set out to, to put it down in memoir? Oh, absolutely. So much of writing this book was about sort of rewriting this classic adoption narrative that I'd been given. And of course, it was just my story, but it was also so similar to the stories I've heard from, you know, countless other adoptees, you know, things we were told about our placements and our adoptions and our birth parents' choices. So often, I think these things are said, you know, with the best of intentions and with grains of truth in them, certainly, but um, a lot of it's guesswork. So when I decided I reached a point, you know, in my mid to late 20s where that basic story wasn't enough anymore. I remember it was just a really frightening thing. But one of the things that kept me going was the knowledge that this could be empowering in a sense for me. It was really a chance to rewrite my own story. So yeah, I did that with a search and then I did it again, really writing this book. And and how would you describe, like, so for people who haven't read the book, um, how would you describe that, that kind of inherited narrative um, that you grew up with and and maybe contrast that with the more complicated version or the Cliff's Notes of the more complicated version, I guess. Right. That's a good question. I mean, as I mentioned before, I grew up hearing the same story over and over, which was my birth parents had just moved to the U.S. from Korea like a year or two before I was born. Um, they ran a family business. They didn't have much money. They didn't have health insurance. Um, and so when I was born, and I was born really early, and the doctors told them there'd be a lot of like complications and challenges. You know, I was told they really felt that they couldn't provide for me. And so they felt adoption was the best choice, like the only choice. That was the story, you know, that I heard over and over growing up. And there are a couple things to note about it, like as as bare bones as it was. First of all, like their love for me was always stressed. You know, the, the fact that the adoption was really made sort of in my best interest was always stressed because my family was religious, my adoptive family. There was also this this line of like, you know, God also intended us to have you. Um, it was all like divine planning. So it wasn't just a noble choice on my birth parents' part. It was really like providence. And that was the story. That was what I heard growing up. And like certainly having reconnected with my birth family, I've learned I basically have a deeper, richer version of that story. Um, I do believe that in in a lot of ways they did feel adoption was their best only choice, but there were a lot of reasons for that that had nothing to do with me. Um, even some things that didn't have to do with like their finances or my potential health complications. There were, my birth family experienced real like trauma of their own and had real challenges to face. And I think, you know, certainly adoption was the best choice for me, but they also felt it was the only choice for them. It was, it was something a lot, a lot more complex. One thing I wanted to ask you about when you when you talk about the story that you grew up with, there's a part in the book where near the beginning where you're kind of you're talking about the actual 
days surrounding your adoption and you do it in this third person and not like not in not in the first person of the rest of the memoir and I was wondering if you could talk about that choice a little bit because I definitely noticed the shift and I thought it was really powerful. I, I did. I actually went to third person in a few different places in the book. The chapter you're referring to, it is early on. It's focused on my adoptive parents and it's before I entered the picture. So um, I, the more I thought about it, the more I really wanted to give them a chapter, at least of their own perspective in the book. I'm repeating stories that I've heard all my life. You know, I'm, re- I'm repeating facts. I, I double checked with them before writing, but it was really before I entered their lives. And I wanted the reader to be able to understand who my adoptive parents were and who they are, because I think you need to understand them as like whole complex people in order to understand how much they wanted to adopt, you know, how much they wanted me, how much it felt like the fulfillment of their greatest wish to understand why it was so difficult for me for so many years to imagine another family or to imagine searching for my other family. I really wanted that as a place where they would be like honored in the book and have like a real place and you could see who they were without and before me. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because like one perspective I think on memoir is that it is, you know, the writer's space to be completely to completely center their experience of the world, right? And to just kind of say, this is how I remember it and I felt it and I saw it. And one of the things I thought was so interesting about your book is that is definitely a part of it. I mean, obviously you are at the center of this story, but you do a lot to prioritize the narratives of the people in your various families as well. And maybe maybe talk a bit about why you wanted to do that. I mean, I think it's the job of a memoirist um, to show like multiple characters, multiple perspectives, honestly, I don't think I should be the, obviously like everything sort of filtered through my memories or my interpretation or what I was told, even, even if it's not based on my exact memory, but I think I shouldn't be the only person in the book who's allowed that perspective and agency. Like I, I really felt writing this book about the most important people in my life. I I really wanted them to sort of live on the page in the same way I get to. Um, I know you've written about this, you know, in essays outside of the context of the memoir, too. But maybe you could talk a bit about what what was the catalyst for you wanting to seek out a connection with your birth family? Yeah, I had thought about it for years. It's funny. Sometimes I think if I hadn't gotten pregnant when I did or if I'd never gotten pregnant at all, maybe I wouldn't have searched. And other times I'm convinced no matter what, I definitely would have searched for them. It's funny. I can't even really say for sure, which is true on any given day. I I do know I thought about it for years and I had even done some research. You know, I sort of knew what the process would involve. Um, The final push really happened when I, when I got pregnant, you know, I remember sitting at the, at my first prenatal appointment talking to the midwife and I was just completely unable to answer any of her questions about like my birth history, about my medical history, about how my mother's pregnancies and births had been, about why I was born so early. It was really scary, honestly, because up until that point, I hadn't really had a reason to think about how my being adopted and not having access to any of that could have an impact on my child. All of a sudden, it felt very important. So it was by no means like the only reason I searched, but um, certainly one reason was to get like medical history to understand if I could like, I don't know why my, why my birth mother went into labor so early and, you know, if the same thing was likely to happen to me. Um, and beyond that, I think I just really wanted to have a personal history to share with my child. I assumed that they would have questions one day. 
and they'd be questions I wouldn't be able to answer. I felt like I didn't have enough to offer them all of a sudden. And that was the first time that I really suddenly realized like there's going to be a child. Like I'm not going to be alone in, in a sense, like I have been, like I said, I think eventually I I might've searched anyway, but I think the reason I searched when I did is because I was pregnant with my first child. Yeah. And it's so interesting too, thinking about how you were essentially choosing to pass down a more complicated narrative than the one, you know, you were told growing up, that that's what that choice represented. It's true. It's true. I mean, in a way, that nice little fable I was told would have been a fine thing, I guess, to pass on. But it always bothered me that it wasn't the full story or that I still had all these questions. And I'm one of those people who really thinks that, like, the truth is important. And knowing the truth, even when it's painful, can be really empowering. You know, it took me a long time to get to that point in terms of my own adoption story. But I really did finally just reach this felt like a crossroads where if I didn't actually make a choice and move forward and try, at least try to find more answers, I would never be able to stop wondering. Like I'd never be able to stop thinking about it. Um, It just got to the point where I couldn't live with not at least trying to find out more. Yeah. And I think like most things in life, I mean, maybe you can speak to this a little bit. The, even the things that you were, went on to find out about your birth family were not like answers in the clean sense, right? Like you had more information, but it wasn't. Yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that process and whether that was how how that felt in real time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's real life. So, so often we don't get like neat, tidy answers. I don't know what I was expecting. It's hard to remember what I was expecting because I've been so caught up ever since I found them in like the reality of what I found which has in many ways been more wonderful than I even imagined. Like having this relationship with my sister is something I wouldn't have expected when I set out to to find my birth parents and reconnect with them. It, it's been just like one of the greatest blessings of my life and it was completely unlooked for. But yeah, I, I think I was sort of expecting when I when we reconnected, either what they told me would line up completely with what my adoptive parents had told me or, you know, it would be completely different. And of course, the reality was like somewhere in between, right? In that fuzzy gray area, like where so much of life is. But I'm still really grateful to know what I do. I still really feel like there is power in knowing. And I I know a lot of adoptees are unable to get more information about their birth families. So I also feel it's a real privilege that I was able to find out more at all. You know, it really, I reading your book and the way that you've kind of written about family as inseparable from race, as inseparable from culture, as inseparable from, you know, just like the individual messy lived experience in this world. I've really been thinking a lot about the tendency that, you know, like I was, I was raised by white parents who I have to imagine are like, you know, roughly the same age as your parents who are very much of that colorblindness is a really good answer to like racial injustice or like, you know, a, a way a way of kind of being in the world that is like a positive corrective perhaps. And I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about how um, the specifics of your memoir really, really serve to not like in a kind of argumentative theoretical way, like it's bad to say that, but like really kind of unpack what it does when that is a narrative about race. I don't know. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, not just inherited narratives in in family, but like inherited narratives about like, you know, racial difference and like the ways we talk about that 
because like your parents, like all of us and you and me, we're all raised in a culture that has certain ways of discussing race as well. In the same ways families can discuss their own narratives in these like oversimplified ways. Yeah, almost like myths. Yeah, um, yeah I, I get that. That's a huge question. I will try. Uh, growing up in my family, you know, we really didn't talk about race at, at all. It was not... It was not something that like we ever really discussed. So when I write in the book about like facing racism at school, I didn't really know that's what it was. Um, I thought of racism as something like firmly entrenched in the past, something that we'd conquered largely um, and something that was always violent too, or like a direct suppression of rights. I mean, that's not how I would have phrased it as a child, of course, but like looking back, I can see like I didn't have, I was being called slurs. Yes. Or like I'd get microaggressions at the grocery store. Yes. But I didn't know that that was racism. Like no one ever told me that's what it was. And we, we honestly didn't talk about, about it at all. Like, I, I can't remember being given, even even the sense that, like, they never really came out and said, like, colorblindness is the way to go, even. It wasn't even that explicit. They would say things in passing, like, well, the way we were raised, like, it doesn't really matter what color you are. It matters what kind of person you are, which is, I guess, effectively saying the same thing as people should be colorblind. It was really more of an absence of a conversation than like a narrative that I heard over and over regarding race itself. And I had to really learn how to think and learn how to talk about it. And it largely didn't happen until I left home. I think part of the reason we never talked about race is because I grew up in a very white area. So People of color, it's not there weren't any, but we were few and far between. We were kind of invisible in some places. There was a lot of pressure to just, I don't know if assimilate is the right word, but like it would be very hard to grow up a person of color in my area and not feel like whiteness was the default or like something to aspire to even. You know, when I was trying to like fit in, I was trying to fit in with white kids because they were the only kids I saw. And that's what I thought it meant to be white was to fit in and to belong. And I remember sometimes just being really shocked when I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. Like, I don't look like everybody else, but I feel like I should look like everybody else. So where I grew up, it was just, there were those two things going on. It was, it was very, very white. And yeah, there was definitely that strain of like, I don't know, faux progressive. Like, if we just don't talk about it and just ignore it, that's the best thing. So both those things were happening simultaneously, I think. So yeah, it was a very strange thing. And then... It really took being out of that very white environment for several years before I was able to even begin to unpack sort of the harm it caused and the things I grew up taking for granted or not thinking about. I don't know. I think it's not like I've reached any any firm conclusions about that, except I can begin now to sort of look at um, some of the harm caused and some of the scars I carry and some of the like just wrong-headed views that I think I've had to work on as a result of growing up in a very white environment. Right. What do you tell people now who kind of ask you that very blunt question of like, should we adopt a child of another race? Um, I know you talked about like, you know, for years, your default answer to that question. And I'm wondering, I mean, other than just hand them your book, which I think would be an amazing response. um, What do you, what do you, what do you say to that question? Which I'm sure you're kind of, I'm sure you're dealing with some of this as you're on the road and, and talking about this book too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's come up in a few interviews. It's been a while since an actual prospective adoptive couple asked me like very bluntly, do you think this is a good idea? Would you do this if you were us? But when it comes up in interviews, it's more like, what would you say to people who are thinking about adopting across racial lines? 
So first, like with all the disclaimers, I don't feel qualified to give a lot of parenting advice. I am a parent, but like, <laughs> um, I also, uh, yeah, I am not like a trained counselor and, and all of this, but I do feel really the beginning point for any parent, regardless of whether they're adopting or having biological kids, you know, or in some way parenting kids who aren't born to them. It's just empathy, like being able to put yourself in that child's position and imagine the world through their eyes. And it's, it's a very easy thing to say and a really hard thing to do. You know, I think in a way all parents struggle with it a little bit. I know I try and I fail plenty, but when you're adopting across racial lines, you know, you have to be able to look really closely at not just your family, um, but like your neighborhood, your schools, like your community, any like religious organizations, your social circle, you know, if maybe you're comfortable there, maybe you're sure everybody would be like, quote unquote, tolerant or accepting of a non-white child. But I mean, if you were really bringing a child of color into your life, into your world, like what would their experience be? And then also, I think adoptive parents have to be really aware that it's there's a lot more talk in adoption these days about like celebrating a child's birth culture, culture of origin. You know, there's a lot more opportunities, I think, for like language or food or art or dance exploration. And that's all really wonderful. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to have really hard conversations too. So when your child does experience racism at school or out in the community, what are you going to say? How are you going to talk to them about it? Like, how are you going to be their best allies? Because you do, you will have to walk with them through something you have not experienced as a white person. So, you know, how are you going to equip yourself to do that? I guess I'm kind of annoying now when people ask and I basically just come back with more questions for them because I don't, I don't think of, of adoption in terms of like right or wrong, at least when we're talking about individual like specific people, but I do think there's a lot of important questions that like anybody who's thinking about transracial adoption should be able to ask themselves and answer very honestly. Right. Last question. We talk a lot. I mean, our show is a conversation between two long distance friends and we talk a lot about the influence of friendship on our lives. And almost everyone who we interview, we ask about their best friends and they're the people who are really kind of part of their supportive community, maybe outside the realm of family. And I'm curious about in your life, who are the people who were really there for you as you, as you worked through a lot of this stuff? I mean, especially maybe in your, in your twenties. That's a great question. There are so many people <laughs> um, in a sense, like, <laughs> so I just had my launch at Powell's in Portland, which was really wonderful because I was back in my home state. I'm not from Portland, but a lot of my friends have moved there and my sister's there. So it felt like a hometown crowd for me. And, you know, we grew up in the same pretty white town, but like we've stayed really close and I've been able to talk with them about like all of these issues. And I know like for all of them, like racial justice and social justice are things they really care deeply about. Wasn't necessarily stuff we talked about growing up in like middle school and high school, but we've kind of grown up together and been able to have those conversations. You know, I, I guess I have to mention the importance of online communities for me because not growing up in say like a Korean American community, the first Asian American community I found, communities I found were really online. I used to work at Hyphen Magazine before the Toast, and that was really so important to me. It was one of the first online Asian American communities that I was part of. And yeah, there's also just a lot of great people that I've met, uh, again, like online, honestly, I kind of hate to say it, but like through Twitter or the Toast or 
other communities. And I think, especially like since the election, just like been leaning really hard on like those trusted groups, a lot of writers and editors, a lot of women of color. Um, and it's just been, it's been like the thing keeping me sane, honestly, not just as I deal with like this book and the issues that were, that writing it brought up for me, but, you know, just moving forward, figuring out how to keep, keep going and keep fighting. You know, I would be, I would be nowhere without these communities. So I'm really, really grateful for those. Yeah, staying in the complicated space requires so much support and love. <laughs> I feel like on it all does. fronts. It really yeah. does. Nicole, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really honored. It was a lot of fun. I called up one of my favorite writers, Imani Perry, who is amazing. She's an iconic Black intellectual. Mm, love and an iconic Black intellectual. Listen, she has many books out right now at the same time. Like, Stop it. That's how iconic and productive she is. But um, the book that I want to talk to her about is Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry. So Lorraine Hansberry is like a black radical and incredible playwright and writer who has always been in my imagination as the woman who wrote Raisin in the Sun. And what I realized is that for, you know how like when people are sometimes like so embedded in your mind, you realize that you just know their name, but you don't actually know a lot about their life. Totally. Like she's this stand in for like black genius among playwrights, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I knew that she had died at the age of 35, like very, very young. And, you know, that she had this like, trove of plays that was like unpublished and unfinished you know like screenplays and all sorts of various writing but I didn't quite know a lot about her life and Imani's book blew my mind in the sense that one you have an incredibly capable writer who knows her way around writing a biography who knows her way around the history and the context of civil rights movement and then you have the amazing life of Lauren Hansberry. And there is just something about when, you know, like, like I said, the writer is incredibly capable, but also is incredibly empathetic. That just makes for incredible reading. And it was one of those books that like, you forget that you're reading hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and mm, hundreds, truly. I love that. Of, of pages about somebody's life. And it really touched me and I think ignited something in me about thinking about the ways that we qualify black women genius and, you know, and Lauren Hansberry is somebody who, like I said, died very young of cancer and has this incredible legacy. And it was just, um, it was so striking to me about how she was just taken away. So way too soon. 
Like I said, Amani Perry is, you know, like legendary black intellectual. She's also a scholar on race, law, literature, and African-American culture, you know, and it's no surprise that she's a professor at Princeton. And here she is. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Imani, can you tell me what the inspiration behind writing this book was? Well, I mean, the inspiration behind writing the book really is Lorraine herself. You know, she was this um, extraordinary woman, um, an intellectual, an artist, you know, the first black woman to have a play produced on Broadway, uh, but also an essayist and um, a fiction writer and an activist and really just extraordinary in every way. And there hadn't been that much that had been written about her uh, and not, you know, a full length biography or um, a, a kind of like sort of treatment of the story of her life. And then add to that, you know, she was in so many ways at the intersection of issues that we're talking about today. She identified as a feminist. She identified as a lesbian. You know, she was really concerned with the politics of race. And so it just seemed like the time to tell her story was now. In the book, you actually draw a lot of parallels um, between Lorraine's story and how you feel connected to her. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, for me as someone who was raised on the left politically and uh, amongst intellectuals and my dad who shared her birthday and absolutely adored Lorraine Hansberry and other people who shared his birthday, um, who it was my adoptive father, who was a Jewish American communist. um, And then you know, my mother and I are both natives of Birmingham, Alabama. And, you know, so Lorraine's roots in the Deep South, um, her partnership with Robert Nemiroff, who was a Jewish communist, and her identity as a socialist all kind of deeply resonated with my own life. And so there was this, always a sense of connection to her. And it just, you know, kind of blossomed as I became older and and I felt, you know, sort of drawn to recounting her story, not just identifying with her. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you explore a lot also is just like the sense of restlessness that she has and just Mm -hmm. how self-critical she she can be and that's something that I identified a lot with and I you know like I I had not seen like especially written about a woman in in this historical kind of way so I wonder if you can talk about that a little more so Lorraine was was interesting because she was very critical of her sense of herself as undisciplined um, she always felt a sense of restlessness. She was drawn in, in in so many different directions. She was always coming up with new projects and ideas, and it resonated. I found it very moving. I also, um, there's something about sort of acknowledging that someone who possessed such genius and was so productive was also self-critical and had moments of doubt. I just think it's a really important lesson for us because so often, particularly with iconic figures, we tell pretty tidy stories about their achievement. But, you know, creativity is messy. You know, learning more about her story helped me become more patient and generous with myself, um, which I think, I hope it does that for, for readers broadly. I love that. You know, there's a lot about 
how she critically thinks about race and class. You describe, you know, like the white mobs that harass her family in Chicago. Mm -hmm. But you say like what Lorraine meditated upon with some frustration was gender. And so, you know, she's obviously a feminist, but it seems Mm -hmm. like it's complicated. So um, I would love to hear more uh, what you think about that. So she identifies as feminist, right? But I tried to figure out pretty early on why, and the first question was, okay, so she talks about Langston Hughes, as the, who was in her mentor, as the inspiration for Raisin in the Sun, right? And the title of the play comes from his poem. But it's so clear to me that Gwendolyn Brooks was an influence. And then in the community in New York, she talks a lot about Du Bois and Robeson, but it also seemed to me Alice Childress was an influence. And I, so I started trying to figure out, well, why didn't she acknowledge influences of women more explicitly? And that was really, for me, the pathway to trying to think through the ways in which her feminism was complicated. I mean, I think part of it was that her ambition, she associated with things that men did, Right, And so she often saw men as models, even though she deeply resisted patriarchy and and male supremacy. And I think even the way in which her father really shaped her life and her ambition, even though she had lots of political conflicts with him, is sort of, in in some ways, it's an indication of that that tension. And I think that was pretty common amongst mid 20th century feminists, actually, like, you know, ambition was so gendered that even for feminists, it was it was a challenge to talk about women as models, uh, although certainly Simone de Beauvoir was was absolutely a very explicit role model and inspiration for her. But it was telling that she was someone who was both a feminist, but also struggled with some of the same issues. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? This idea that it's easier to identify with male writers or male activists because they are the model almost, you know? Mm-hmm. So even when you're frustrated, there um, there's more to draw upon in that world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's complicated because to write about her is I have this relationship of just complete adoration, which is part of what sustained me through writing the book. But I didn't want it to be, you know, hey, geography. I didn't want it to just be um, uncomplicated praise. I wanted to portray her as a real person, you know. Yeah, I mean, she's it definitely jumps off the page. I want to discuss what you think the the relationship between like her restlessness and the depression and her art really was. Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, I I'm not equipped to kind of diagnose whether she suffered from clinical depression. She clearly had bouts of depression. She had bouts of depression that were attached to her illness. And I I was really trying to be careful not to overread my own experience with chronic disease into those moments, um, you know, in her diaries and her experience. But they did resonate a lot. Um, and I think for so many of us, they resonate, right, where you know that feeling of the body betraying you and you're trying to work and you are feeling frustrated and that creates a sense of restlessness, but you can't actually do the work in that moment. And um, so that was definitely something that 
was important to me to to capture about her story and then also to paint a, a, a picture in which you could see that even in the moments of depression, she holds on to this sense of hope or possibility. Yeah. And I think it's very much her, her politics, actually. Like, it's not that she's an optimistic person, but I think so much of her politics were, as a leftist, were about imagining a better world, right? That that's what sustained her. So it's a wonderful, it's wonderful to sort of be able to hold on to that even in the parts of her life that, you know, were very difficult to read about or to encounter. Was it overwhelming going through the archive? I imagine there's a lot of unfinished work. <laughs> like, I can't imagine going yeah. through the archives of a very creative person. There's just like bits and pieces everywhere. You know, people have different feelings about the archive. I will say my experience is that it was joyful and more than overwhelming because I just, there was so much that was so good that I had never seen. That's never, you know, that's never been published. And so it was, you know, one of the librarians at the Schomburg Library was teasing me that I became a number, um, another member of the staff because I would just (laughs) sit there all day just reading her words and lots of things that I knew I wasn't going to be able to include in the book, but it was, great. And it's so well organized and just beautifully maintained. But I think part of the reason it didn't feel overwhelming is that I didn't write thinking this will be the final word on Lorraine Hansberry. I wrote Mm. feeling like, here's an introduction. I hope there will be a whole body of work about her that follows from this. You know, it made it possible for me to, to let go of pieces of it for someone else to pick up. Wow. One of the most interesting things that you write about also in the book is her relationship with um, Robert, her husband. Yes. And they're definitely it's definitely a romantic relationship, but it's also uh, very much like a, a power marriage union type mm-hmm. of, you know, yeah. like type of thing. And, and it does get complicated between them. And so how do you feel about that marriage and about him specifically after doing all that research? It's so interesting. Like, it's funny for me, it's analogous to Rita Marley and Bob Marley. I always think about how Rita Marley was really responsible for Bob Marley having the legacy he has. Yeah. Um, And Nimrov was similar. I mean, he really facilitated Lorraine's genius, which is just remarkable for a man in the mid 20th century, particularly given that the romantic part of their relationship ended pretty early, you know, just a couple of years into their marriage. And she began to have other relationships with women and they stayed best friends. But, you know, that was complicated. But he continued to provide financial support, to, you know, encourage her with her writing, particularly when she would get frustrated. And he maintained the archive. I mean, he he was the executor of her estate. And I think in particular, the work that had queer themes, that he maintained them so carefully so that we have them now is just a sign of how, you know, how much he cared for her and what she was trying to do. So I appreciate him. Um, I also appreciate that it had to be incredibly frustrating for her to have a husband who wasn't really husband around all the time as she's trying to figure her life out. Yeah. 
Another thing that I find really interesting is that she wrote all of this lesbian themed work under a pseudonym, mm-hmm. Emily yeah. Jones. That like, why do you think that um, she felt the need to, to separate that work out? You know, we're still talking about a period in which people are being arrested for being lesbian. You know, clubs are being raided. It is an intensely homophobic society. I mean, it still is, but just far more mm-hmm. than. And then... You know, you add to it that she comes from this, you know, very prominent bourgeois black family that was respectable. You know, so I think that she felt like she couldn't be out, but it was also really important for her to do work that spoke to the fullness of her identity and experience. I actually think it was really important that she published the work because the way that I read the archive is that she was just waiting for a time after her death for this to emerge. You know, it didn't feel like wow. a life that she was maintaining to be secret secret forever. Yeah. I am also fascinated by all of the drama around the production of Raisin in the Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like, I love this book because there's just so much I didn't know, which is the best way to read. <laughs> and we celebrate so much, like, you know, Raisin in the Sun because she was the first Black playwright to have a production on Broadway. But, yeah. I, didn't, but I didn't know that that was also because Alice Childress declined to, to stage Trouble in Mind because yeah. she, you know, like, she wouldn't compromise on, you know, like the politics of, of the theater world. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that, you know, Lauren Hansberry is like caught in this very catch-22 kind of situation. She is. She's caught in a catch-22, like with respect to being the first and then with respect to how the play is understood, you know, that it's understood as this like assimilationist fantasy like you know white middle class America and in but just with black people and um and then she has other members of the black left criticizing her for that and so like she she decides to tell this story that's broadly resonant but then the politics her politics get lost her politics around race her politics around class and then she sort of tries to fix things and then she tries to fix things with rewrites of the play, but also with the screenplay. And then they, you know, they, the, the producers won't put it in the, in the film. And she writes letters to the New York times that don't get published and, you know, defending her politics. And so, you know, so this is a period in her life that's like amazing and all her dreams are coming true. And it's incredibly frustrating at the same time. Um, And one of the things that I, I think is really, quite important about her is that she then she doesn't make allow anybody to ever mistake her politics again you know she's just become is very forthright from that point forward one of the like loveliest parts of the book is when um that was excerpted on buzzfeed recently Mm -hmm. was when you talk about her intellectual friendship with james baldwin Oh yeah. And yeah. it is it is such a lovely intellectual partnership to to read about especially um from two like powerhouse queer black writers. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. They are beautiful friends. They are thinking partners. Yeah, you know, they provide support to each other and then this thing they did of having a conversation through the creative work. You know, they have 
like different dynamics that they explore and they go back and forth between the work. It's just, it's so moving to me because it shows what it means to really take the work that your friends do seriously, right? To show Mm. this deep care. I think it's a model for how we should nurture friendships. I also think that there has, there's, you know, Baldwin is now this iconic figure. There's been too little attention paid to how important she was to him. She was important to him in terms of his political development. Um, She was important to him as a source of support and care. Um, And her death was absolutely devastating to him. And similarly with Nina Simone, I mean, you know, Lorraine's death sent her into a tailspin. It was certainly, I think, an an element in her, her psychiatric suffering, you know, later on. It was devastating. So, um... I hope that, you know, the love, but also the impact of her loss is clear. We are so grateful for all of your scholarship. This is really, it was like such a wonderful experience reading this book. And I don't know, it made me feel really hopeful for this, like, kind of terrible political time that we are living in. Oh, that that means the world to me. Especially coming from you. I really, really appreciate that. Oh, my gosh. We're such big fans. Thank you so much, Imani. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And we're so thankful for you. Oh, my God. I love that thing about Lorraine Hansberry and James Baldwin's intellectual friendship. Like, we talked about that excerpt so much. And uh, thank you, Imani Perry. So our last interview on this episode is me in conversation with a person we both know and love, Glory Edom. Glory! Who is the founder of Well-Read Black Girl, a book club turned literary festival based in Brooklyn. And she's also the editor of a new anthology of black women writers called Well-Read Black Girl, Finding Our Stories, Discovering Ourselves. And also a babe in a recent New York Times profile of her. So, um, you know. You know how to get to (laughs) NYT.com. When I opened my New York Times homepage and saw Glory's face, I screamed, like, true fan style. Hi, Glory. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me on here. This is really awesome. I would love to hear you talk a little bit, before we get into your book, a little bit about Well-Read Black Girl and what that is and uh, what sparked the inspiration for it. The story of Well-Read Black Girl is a little uneventful in the way that it started. (laughs) Well, it just started in a way that was just like completely unexpected, right? So my partner had given me the t-shirt for my birthday and I just wore it out into public. And I started a conversation. So women would come up to me and ask me questions. And they'd be like, where did you get this shirt? It says well-read black girl. What does that mean? Like, who are you? It, just, it was just hilarious. But again, unexpected thing that was happening anytime I wore the shirt out into public. And it was that shirt that really was the catalyst for me defining what well-read black girl is and starting the book club and starting the Instagram and all these things. But I didn't go into this thinking that I would have a movement per se. I I really wasn't planning for such wonderful things to happen. And I'm so grateful that they did. But, but, but like once that idea was like planted and I was talking to so many people and I I mean, obviously I was reading, I've always been a big reader. So from that one, you know, random t-shirt conversation, I now have almost, 
140,000 followers on Instagram. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot of people who are like liking and sharing ideas and talking about their favorite books. And the, the real special part of it, as I was starting to plan, was to think about debut writers. So I really focus on women. If it's their first book, they're out in the world, they're trying to just, you know, get people to buy the book and have, you know, like build their community. And most importantly, it's a group of Black women that are like just tuned in and, and want to support them in the most effective way. And, you know, now I now <laughs> I have like a, a book to, to go along with that. So it's really exciting. Yeah. Talk a bit about the book and, and what made you want to put together this collection because I was I was wondering if it, if you see it a little bit as like a primer or as like a point of entry or if you kind of see it more as like a snapshot maybe of this moment and some writers that you're loving. I think I look at it as a point of entry in terms of this is my first time moving from reader to editor and I have such a new just appreciation for writers and all the contributors from Jasmine Ward, to Rebecca Walker, to, you know, Bester Abbas-Gebi. It's a range of voices that are either established in the canon. So, I mean, everybody knows who Jasmine Ward is. And then you have new voices, like my dear friend, Carla Bruce-Eddings. You know, this is her first time actually being in a book, right? So she's written for several different publications, and she's working, and she's a phenomenal writer, uh, but I also wanted to invite her to be part of this collection because, you know, it's, again, it's about discovering new folks. The book itself, when you look at it and you read all the different essays, the two things that come to mind for me are, like, meaning and identity. And so many of the stories are really about, like, personal journeys into Black womanhood and how they were able to discover themselves in the characters. So there were so many just, like, memories of people coming into themselves and their own true origin stories. And that's really like my favorite question whenever I'm doing something. I love to ask people, like, what's your story? Like, what's your origin story? And that really opens up people to say anything and really gives them the space to describe, like, how they came into being. And so this, this book, I hope that in one year, five years, and 10 years, whoever picks it up could like, still have that feeling and the essays feel very much like conversations um, that you're like listening to a memory and you're feeling, you feel seen, you know? And that, that was like what I was like, really striving for as I curated and even as I like selected the contributors. Again, I wanted this to be like a beautiful legacy that lives in the library and a young woman can pick that up, feel seen and just really feel validated. Yeah, and there's something that's so cool to me about kind of going, like really translating what you do with the Instagram and with the community and with the newsletter and everything that you're doing. It's sort of like saying, okay, well, that all feels maybe a little diffuse. Here is like one thing I can hand you and be like, this is what it feels like to be um, a part of this, a part of this like movement and community. And um, I'm wondering if you have thought about that as well. Like there's something about a book that just lives longer than maybe an online conversation or like a specific group of people in one place at one time. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I I think my time at Howard really uh, has prepared me to usher the community and this anthology into the world because naturally I'm part of this like lineage of incredible writers. Like I studied, you know, Toni Morrison and like Zordia Hurston, but what was in that was like looking at one's personhood in a really full and meaningful way. So there wasn't, um, 
I always just like felt comfortable being myself on those canvases. And I didn't want people to like miss out on that feeling of just like being like 100% present and not questioning their blackness. Like they're just like, they're there, you know? So when, when you're reading the book, you are experiencing a moment of being in the book club because what the book club is so special is because people are completely candid in the space. Like when you walk into the book club, we can end up talking about anything, right? And there's a comfort there that you, you're knowing you're being listened to. I have a good friend, Lisa. She she likes to call it creative church. You know, she's just <laughs> I love there. that. <laughs> and, but it's just, that's what it is. Like this is like she like I feel like the it's like a congregation that we're building. And in this book, you have like this beautiful chorus of of voices, right? So the book becomes the choir, um, and we're like singing and we're snapping and we're nodding and we're like, yeah, girl, I feel that. Like that happened to me too. Like there's a lot of just sister that is really unexplained when you walk into the room and just naturally just happens. So the book is part of that, like trying to branch out and introduce the feeling to, to more people around the world. And it will, it will inspire people most importantly, like, cause that's the goal. Like just like have a living record and also just inspiration for like more women, more black women that want to be writers and, may feel that it, it's a difficult task. And it's like, you know, to read this essay and I'll tell you otherwise. Right. Or here's a lot of different ways to do that and live that, right? Like, that's the cool thing about an anthology, I always feel like. It's like, here are a lot of different approaches to this one fundamental question or experience or theme. Exactly. Exactly. Like, and in that, you have so many like elders, too. I think that's another part of the community that I'm, like, so enamored by, just the elders, man, we need to sit down and listen to what has happened before and have, because there's blueprints and there's roadmaps. My favorite part, I mean, there are so many favorite parts, but my favorite, one of my favorite essays is Lynn Nottage's essay, because she really, she talks about her family, you know, she talks about her mother and father that were just immersed in the art, and they introduced her to so many different people in her home. And she goes and talks to just about how she went into playwriting and how at one point she thought she couldn't do it. She thought it, it wasn't like a significant, meaningful career for her to step into. You know, she looked at the artistic practice as a, a little bit as being frivolous, you know, because so many things were happening in the world and she had to like step away from it. And she was a, she did PR for the human rights campaign for several years and we had a great career with that. And then something in her clicked that she decided to go back to playwriting and became who she is now. Just so phenomenal, you know? So we wouldn't have sweat if she didn't have these moments where she questioned and she pushed back and she was like, okay, maybe this isn't the path for me, but no, actually I'm an artist and I have to do this. I mean, I was just like really encouraged because sometimes it feels like you have to do everything right now. And if you don't have everything done by the time you're 25, like you're a failure. And I'm like, y'all remember like Toni Morrison was what, like 40 when she first wrote, wrote the bluest eye, you know what I mean? Like the timelines that we, we force upon ourselves, they don't exist that so we can do anything we want and we can write the books that we want or create the careers and, uh, we don't have to be on anyone's timeline except for our own. Because if you believe in it, you believe in yourself, like it will come to fruition, you know, and just being like really like persistent and uh, dedicated to whatever like your goal is. Oh, my God. That is the best pep talk. Oh, can I talk to you every morning before I start my day? <laughs> this is great. Um, well, I'm so excited to read the book. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. 
Thank you. This has been so much fun. And I love talking to you. I love talking to you on the internet, in real life, on the podcast. You guys are fantastic. And I love you all. So this is a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Uh, glory. This I'm so happy this book is out in the world and exists and it truly is required reading. I know. And I love that she took a break from her writing retreat to talk to us for this episode because she didn't have to. Thank you, Glory. Okay, so we read most of these books a while ago to do these interviews. I want to know what you're reading right now. I have two books on my nightstand right now. If They Come For Us, Poems by Fatma Ashgar that are really, really good, speak to the brown and immigrant experience. And it's always great to read one poem before bed. And uh, a lot of times I read more than one. And the other book that I am reading right now that I am loving and uh, I brought on tour is Nine Street Women, uh, which is a book about Lee Krasner, Elaine the Kooning, Grace Hardigan, Joan Mitchell, and Helen Frankenthaler who you might recognize a lot of their last names because their partners are very famous painters. But anyway, these women are five painters and the tagline of the book is like five painters and the movement that changed modern art. So it really is about um, these women artists who never really got their due and sexism that is prevalent. Wait, you mean women artists didn't get their due? What? Listen, (laughs) that's what I'm hearing. But um, (laughs) the book is really, really, really incredible. And, you know, like a good uh, historical, contextual, art anchored nonfiction. Oh, my God. I can't wait to read it. Okay, so my tour read, like I read 10 pages to put me to sleep when I've got show adrenaline at the end of the night, is The Remains of the Day. <laughs> a, a late 80s, early 90s classic by Kazuo Ishiguro. And it's just about some buttling, some butling in England. Um, it is incredibly slow moving. I am not invested in anything that's happening. And it's why I go to sleep. It is like my own personal, you know, some people use a meditation app. I have 10 pages of this book. I flew through it. I am, I am happy slash sad to report. And then the book that I've been recommending to everyone lately is Thomas Page McBee's Amateur, which um, he's been on the show. He was on our Ask a Man episode earlier this year. But I have turned to it again and again. I read it in galley form like last year, but I have continued to turn to it as toxic masculinity has seemingly like creeped into literally every corner of American life in new and found new prominence. I would say it's always been there. And I really think that he has got a lot to say to people, no matter what their gender identity is, uh, who are interested in and grappling with definitions of masculinity and also definitions of self and identity. So I've been recommending that left and right to men and women alike. I've been recommending the audiobook of that mm. because his reading voice is delightful, which you know how I feel about male voices in general. No, thank you. Does he read it himself? Yes. Exciting. He reads it, he reads it himself and, uh, you know, like beautiful reading voice, great reading energy. So if you're like me and you're in the audiobook game, this is one of the ones I recommend. Pro tip. Great. My reading list has just grown again. <laughs> <laughs> 
See you on the internet, boo boo. Oh my god. See you on the internet, on the nightstand stack, every in the in the library. See you everywhere. See you at the airport on tour. Oh my god. <laughs> you can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcast, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at CallYRGF. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac.